All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with author John R. Foltz about weird tales, sword and sorcery, short stories, writing advice, Elric, his new book, Darker Than Weird, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters' madness and magic. <laughs> John, just so we have a platform to leap from here, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Well, definitely a book reader. I didn't cause trouble till I was in my teens. I was a, an early book reader. I think I started with The Hobbit in third grade. You know, I probably saw the 1977 Hobbit animated show on TV. Mm. And that led me right to The Hobbit book, mm. which led me right to Lord of the Rings. And in 78, Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings came out. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. That, you only got half the story. So naturally, when I found out that you don't get the second half of the story in this movie. I had to go right to the book. So I read, I think I was 11 when I read the trilogy for the first time. But, you know, I was also reading Conan. and uh, The 70s was a great time for fantasy and really horror, too. But sword and sorcery was everywhere and comics and there were paperbacks and fantasy was huge. So growing out of the 70s into the 80s, I always retained my taste for all that good 70s stuff. What year were you born? Sorry if I missed it. 69. So 69. So when you're growing up, what kind of records are spinning around the house? Oh, the first thing I can remember growing up, my family, they're country people. So, you know, they were all into country music, but somehow I wasn't. I was the rocker kid. And it probably started with Kiss. When I was eight years old, 1978, I got Gene Simmons' solo record because I just thought the demon was so cool, you know, <laughs> blood dripping out. And that led me to get Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over, which is interesting we're talking about this because in the past couple of months, I've been rediscovering the Kiss albums that I had when I was a kid. Destroyer is still an amazing album, Rock and Roll Over. So that was the back in the day when you could join a record club for a penny and get like 12 albums. That's how I would get albums. Later, you could do the tape club and you could get tapes. You know. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I'm a, I'm a total 70s kid. Are those your original records that you're listening to? No, I don't have too many original records. It's funny because in the 90s, everybody got rid of their records and replaced them with CDs. Mm-hmm. And now CDs are outdated. But I'm keeping my CDs. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna throw them away. Everything Somehow, gets a return. I'll, yeah, all of the. Re- I have a, a couple of cassette tapes from back in the day, but mostly just a couple boxes of CDs. But I don't even listen to those anymore because I get everything online. You know, everything's online now. When I buy a new album, I'll just download it. I like the Amazon Unlimited music because you don't have to actually buy anything. You just pay your monthly fee. But sometimes I'll I'll go in and buy the album anyway because I want to support the band, you know. And I like a lot of indie bands these days. Uh, yeah. Mainstream rock is pretty much dead. Agreed. So if you want rock and roll, you got to go underground, you know, <laughs> which is kind of cool, actually. Yeah, that's that's how it should be, I believe. You know, you're, you're right about that. It, it really got out of hand. 
But growing up in the 70s, rock and roll was everywhere. I mean, Kiss was everywhere. And it was like Led Zeppelin had basically formed the 70s. So when I was growing up, kids were playing with fake guitars and stuff before they were old enough to play real guitars. Now, kids grow up on hip-hop. They don't grow up on rock and roll unless they seek it out. It's still there. It's just, like you said, it's probably better because instead of a bunch of heavy bands trying to write a ballad and get a hit, you got a bunch of heavy bands doing their own stuff mm. and doing it exactly what they want to do and finding a following. You know, and It boggles my mind sometimes because in the late 90s, uh, early 90s, after college, me and my friends, we were dedicated to our band for like three or four years. But that meant we played the same three clubs for like three or four years. And there was really no internet yet. And I think about today, you could form a band and get a world follow worldwide following from YouTube. Yeah, that's the thing. You, know, you, you can get your name out there so much. I mean, on the flip side of that, you know, there's a lot of oversaturation out there. But Absolutely. That's yeah. the bad part of it is that you have to wade through a lot of stuff you don't like to find something that really works for you. But I don't mind that. You know, I, I just feel sorry for a lot of those bands that they're not quite ready yet. If, if this was back in the day, they wouldn't get a label yet because they're not ready yet. But now a lot of, let's face it, a lot of horrible bands can put out music just like a lot of great bands. But then who? Then again, you know, who am I to say who's horrible? You know, so what? when I like something, someone else usually hates it and vice versa, you know. Right. Anything that's too mainstream, too popular, I tend to not like it. Much. I'm with you. Different strokes, different folks. Yeah. I could go on to a whole separate podcast about music, <laughs> but I know we're not here to talk about music. So what about your parents, John? Were they artistically inclined at all? Did you point to your mother or father where you get some of that from? Not really. My mom, she was a school teacher, so she was very by the book. She lived through the 60s, but she missed out on all the cool shit in the 60s. You know, she was working and going to school and raising a baby. And well, she didn't have me till 69, but she got married quite young. I learned later in life that all that cool stuff I loved about the 60s, my mom wasn't involved with any of it. She was a country girl who was trying to make a, a better life for herself. And she was working too hard to enjoy any of that wild stuff. So later in life, she learned to have a little more fun in life. But I think when back in the 60s, you always think that if people who lived through the 60s, that they were into the Beatles and that they were into the counterculture and that they were into not so not so anyway my mom and dad were divorced when i was an infant didn't have too much relationship with my dad but my mom got remarried when i was about seven for a few years and so she was never into artistic things but she always supported me being like she would get me books and music and stuff and she always supported me being creative although there was a time when I used to get sci-fi and fantasy books exclusively. And she was like, why don't you read some normal books? Read it like Gone with the Wind or why don't you read this normal stuff? Because she didn't see that. This was before sci-fi and fantasy was cool. A lot of people today don't, don't get this, but for decades, if you were into sci-fi and fantasy, you were a nerd simply because for no reason. I don't know how that changed. I guess I guess that generation grew up and said, hey. Yeah, we're making the stuff now. Stuff. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Marvel is the most has the most hit movies of any anybody. When I was a kid, I used to dream about that. What if Avengers was a movie? Whoa. You know, what if you could X-Men, Daredevil, all this all this stuff I grew up on. So a lot of people hate Marvel, but I really like it because I've followed these stories and these characters since I was a kid, you know. Right. I do not hate Marvel. I don't look at it as a Marvel movie. It's like Okay, I like this movie. Maybe I don't like this next movie. You know, I look at it on, on an individual basis, I guess, is the what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. I like Marvel movies, but that doesn't mean I like every one exactly. of them. Exactly, yeah. That, I'm, I'm with you. And mm. the, the same with Star Wars movies. I couldn't stand Solo. I, it, I fell asleep three times trying to get through Solo. <laughs> I thought that it, it was great 
it had a great potential. But you know, when you change directors in the middle of a movie, and, and I didn't know that happened. something went wrong. Yeah, I think Ron Howard had to come in and take over, or was he the one who left? Anyway, but you know, compare that to the other Star Wars movies that came out around the same time. I really like those, and you know, I like the Disney shows. They're all pretty much really good. But yeah, I think you got to judge them on a case by case basis. You right. can't just reject them all because, oh, that's all Marvel. You'll so miss out on some good all. stuff if you do that. And they intentionally try to do projects that feel different from other projects. They know they've got different markets. So you can see them hitting different markets on Disney Plus than they do in certain movies. And, right. and certain movies will hit certain markets. And I think it's a wise approach, you know, rather than just saying, oh, everybody will like everything we do. Let's do something for this group of people. Let's do something for that group of people. And if you want to join in, you can. Well said. While we're on the subject of film and television, when you think back to formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes to mind? Oh, man. My all-time favorite TV show was Kung Fu with David Carradine. Created by Bruce Lee, but Bruce, unfortunately, wasn't allowed to star in the show he had created. But I didn't know any of that as a kid. My introduction to mysticism and Oriental philosophy and Shaolin Buddhism and all this stuff came through that show. So as a kid, I remember just being mesmerized by Kwai Chang Kane and his walking across the desert and how he would always meet up with people that wanted to do him harm. And he would always sidestep it, get out of it. You know, all it took was... They were only allowed, I found out later, they were only allowed to show two minutes of violence every hour. It's an hour-long program. But in the 70s, you could only have two minutes of violence. So he was only able to use his kung fu for two minutes every time. So the brilliance of the show is they would go into slow motion. And so that one kick would, would be like 30 seconds, you know. <laughs> kung fu was great because not only did it have the Western, it had the Western aspects, but it had the Eastern mystical type aspects. And yes, David Carradine wasn't, wasn't Chinese. He wasn't even half Chinese, but he did portray that character with his body and soul. You know, I think if he had stuck with it more than three seasons, it would have still been, you know, because he quit that show in 1973 when it was the biggest show in the world. And mm -hmm. he, walked, he walked away from it. And I think he regretted it. But that was that was my big thing growing up. And when it comes to other shows from my youth, I think anything fantastical, pretty much, because there wasn't a lot. You had to catch stuff like old reruns from the 60s, you know, old Spider-Man TV show, or <laughs> old Flash Gordon movies from the 30s. There, were, there wasn't a whole lot for us fantasy and sci-fi kids back in the day. Every now and then you might get a an anime which was translated, like uh, Battle of the Planets or what was that other one? Voltron or something. The one show that towers over all the others for me was Kung Fu. The name's escaping me, but I'm pretty sure there's like been a modern reimagining of Kung Fu that's out now. There is. There's one on CW. And that network does a good job of targeting sort of the teen market. And so all of their shows feel very teen oriented to me. They don't feel like all ages show that maybe that's just me. Right. But I've enjoyed some of their shows, but I always get tired of it after a while. Like for a while I was watching The Flash and I got out of it. And Same. For a while I was watching Arrow and okay, I'm falling out of it. I haven't watched the new Kung Fu because it's so incredibly different. I don't have anything against how they have a female star in that. I think that's great. But I wanted to see a Kung Fu set back in the back in the 1800s it's just not the same walking around in 2021 shaolin monk right. it doesn't work it, it doesn't really work for me you know at least the people behind the show are doing a good job and making right. a good living you know? <laughs> so, like you were saying today there's enough entertainment out there for everybody to find something there's so much going on so john this is something i like to ask everyone what scared you as a kid oh geez that's a good question i think probably one of my earliest fears i remember was nuclear war you know, you learn about that as a kid in elementary school. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of tensions with Russia. This was the late 70s, early 80s. 
So I, I remember as a kid going through some some anxiety about the nukes. They're all gonna we're gonna have a nuclear war. And my mom's a very practical person. She would be like, "Oh, we're not gonna die. It's gonna be fine," you know. <laughs> so she would comfort me, and and I would forget about it for a while, you know. And then I'd see something else on nuclear. War. So that's just something I think everybody, my generation and after. We just learn to live with it. We just learn to live. And even today, we all live with the idea that we could be blown away at any second. Yes, it's constantly looming. (laughs) So it's like, you might as well just enjoy life. It's like the old story of the guy. I think this is a Chinese folktale. The guy's hanging off the cliff, and he's about to fall to his death. And at the top of the cliff is a tiger, which is waiting to eat him. And he finds a wild strawberry growing on the side of the cliff. And so he eats the strawberry. And that's supposed to be a reminder that you have to enjoy life while you have it because you're either going to fall or you're going to get eaten by the tiger. <laughs> so it's <laughs> great. And then when you hit 50, you really start to, I'm 53 now. And when you hit 50, you really start to think about, hmm, how much time do I have left? And what do I want to do with it? You know, and in my case, what kind of books do I want to write? You know, what, what kind of creative, so I've always got to have some kind of creative outlet and, at this point in my life, it's writing. In my 20s, it was music. Teens and 20s, it was total, totally music. I think I answered your question. Yeah, that was a great answer. <laughs> so when it comes to writing, when do you first begin to experiment creatively and maybe make your own short stories? How early on are we talking? Well, I do remember the first time I ever felt like like I wrote something good was seventh grade. We had an assignment to write a short story. I don't really remember what the assignment was, but I wrote a little short story about a knight who goes out to fight a dragon and everybody tells him, don't go fight the dragon. It's a man-eating dragon. It's terrible. You can't win. And so the knight didn't listen and he went out and he charged the dragon and was immediately destroyed and crisped and eaten. And so my English teacher, Miss Kimberlane, she liked it so much she read it to the class. And I remember feeling a pride that I had never felt before. Hey, I wrote that. And she says it's good. And they liked it too. So that might have been my first writing bug, you know, right there. But I remember in college, I took a lot of creative writing courses and probably dabbled in writing a few short stories in in high school, but it didn't really hit me till college Mm. because that's when you get those really good creative writing courses. And Weird Tales, right about the same time I went into college, I discovered the new version of Weird Tales, the Terminus edition, edited by Schweitzer and George Skithers, Schweitzer and Skithers. So I was reading weird tales and i was i was like i gotta get published in this magazine this magazine has been around since the 20s and it kicks ass so i started writing stories in my creative writing classes that i could submit to weird tales and i would always get rejected but daryl schweitzer would always write me back unlike other editors who i might have been rejected by he would always write me personalized instructions what to work on and i'm like oh this is awesome he's literally telling me how to get better cut to 15 years later 15 years after college i finally not that I wrote, you know, I would take a break from writing and then maybe I would write, I would come back to it. And But 15 years later, I finally sold my first story and it was to Weird Tales. When Daryl was still editing it, it appeared in Weird, Weird Tales number 340. It was called The Persecution of Artifice the Quill. And almost immediately after that, Daryl and George were replaced by a totally different editorial team who wanted to revamp everything. So... That was the first and last time I ever appeared in Weird Tales. Daryl had bought two other of my stories over the following year. But when they came in, they were like, nah, old people, go away. If you're not famous, we don't want you, pretty much. But dude, and being so I was Weird Tales for your first story is awesome. I still think of it fondly, and um, it, it was a, quite a thrill. you know. And It took a while for me to accept the fact that I wasn't going to be in Weird Tales anymore. I was knocking my head against the wall, submission after submission after submission. Because in my view, I had worked 15 years to get in this magazine, and I finally did. And then, boom, someone else takes over. 
and now they want me to work another 15 years. So after about five years of absolute repetition going nowhere, I said, forget it, forget it, I'm done. I don't need to be in this magazine anymore. There are other magazines out there. In fact, fuck short stories, I'm writing novels now. <laughs> so after I got a few years of short stories under my belt, I decided I'm gonna graduate up to novels. So for the next few years, I was working on trying to get a good novel together. The end result, long story, end result was my first novel, Seven Princes, which came out in 2012. But I had written a whole earlier version of that novel and scrapped it because it wasn't any good. People always say, how long did it take you to write that book? And I'm like, about five years altogether. But that's not bad because I've heard people like, R. Scott Backer is one of my favorite writers and it took him 15 years to write his first novel. I guess I did pretty well then, you know, to do it in four or five years. Anyway, I skipped ahead. Your you were asking me about the first story. Yeah, I, I freaking love Weird Tales. I got this, got this compilation, hardcover, Weird Tales, the magazine that never dies. It was edited by Marvin Kay, still one of my favorite anthologies. And it was just a bunch of stories from the old Weird Tales and the new Weird Tales, the Terminus included. And there was some great stuff in there. That, so many good stories in it. And one of them is a Daryl Schweitzer story. So Daryl went from somebody who was sending me editorial advice and rejecting me to someone whose work I started reading and was absolutely blown away by it because he's got this sensibility for dark fantasy that I think is pretty much unrivaled. And a lot of people don't, they're tired of me talking about what a great writer Daryl is. The world already knows this. I don't really think he gets enough attention for whatever reason. There's a lot of writers like that. They're amazing, but the world just doesn't seem to recognize it. And they always have these dedicated cult followings. People that like Schweitzer's work know what I'm talking about. You don't get much better at writing short stories. I've told Daryl he should write more novels, but the thing is, he feels more comfortable writing short stories. So mm. in his career, he's written over like 400 short stories and only about four novels. That's just the way his creativity works, you know, so I understand that. I went through a period recently where I wasn't writing short stories for about three years, three or four years, and I was concentrating on novels. Mm -hmm. Now I'm waiting for those novels to get picked up, and I'm planning to jump back into short stories. Kind of cyclical. <laughs> I know there's different ways to skin a cat, and each, each one can be different, but what does your typical process look like? Are you an outliner? Do you like to sit down and go with the flow and fix it later? Are you talking short stories, novels, or both? Let's talk short stories. For short stories, sometimes it's really different. It really depends on the story. Usually it'll start with an idea and then I'll let it sort of swim around in my mind or gestate for a while. And then I might get an idea of how I want it to end. And generally when I get an idea of what I want the ending to be, then I can figure out the rest of the story. But sometimes other stories will come in like a flash, like a thunderbolt. There's this one story I wrote called Chevane, and it's actually one of the stories that most people tell me, oh my God, this story, it's like amazing. It, I've got the most praise from this story from probably one of my most praised stories. And I wrote that in one sitting. I sat down and I was hugely inspired. I had just finished writing a novel and I wanted to do something totally different from that. So I just banged it out straight from the beginning and I did what I call the Tanith Lee method. Tanith Lee never did outlines. She always worked, well, she wrote longhand, by the way, which that drives me crazy. I write so slow longhand. Side note, in college, I did write my first novel in longhand on, in five spiral-bound notebooks. Oof. But it, 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 it wasn't good enough to get published, but at least I got it out of there. Yeah. But Tanith Lee did this her whole career. She wrote, she's one of my big heroes. She wrote everything longhand. And so her second draft was always when it got typed up or either she or someone who worked with her typed it up. So that story just flew right out of me, just like the way Tanith writes. There are other stories where I have to think about it and plot it out. So I don't do like put an outline on the wall or anything. 
what I'll do is I'll just start taking notes. And it's really sort of disorganized notes that really anybody else looking at it, it would look like chaos. So I, I don't like to get too, uh, like, I don't like to plan too much in too detail because then it's boring for me when I write it. But what I like to do is have a general idea where I'm going and a general idea where what I want to hit, some points I want to hit on the way there. Someone once compared it to driving through fog. And you can see the next you can see the next street light up ahead, but you don't know how you can just barely see us. As you get closer, you see the actual pole in the street light. I think that's Stephen King. I think it is. He may, that may have been one of his uh, analogies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as long as you have a goal you're heading for, it's fun to discover how you're going to get there. But I also think that comes with experience. I think as a younger writer, you tend to plot, you tend to plan out more in, in more detail. But it also varies from writer to writer. Like I know my buddy Howard Jones, amazing writer. He, Howard Andrew Jones, he plans out things in meticulous detail and does in-depth outlines, and that works for him. I don't have the patience to do that. I have to, like, I put up goalposts, and then I just start running from each goalpost Mm. to goalpost. And sometimes I like to fly blind. And sometimes you fly blind and you create something great. Other times you fly blind and you're like, I don't think that worked. You know, so the basic answer to you is it depends on the story, and it depends. Some stories come to you with a character some stories come to you with a concept some stories come to you with a specific scene and once you get that scene you're in there you know but overall i like to think of it as um, i like to think of everything comes from character basically that's where i start i can't start until i have an interesting character so i think about i might even write a character profile mm. but usually it's all in my mind and i'll just think about this character who they are what do they want and what what might be an up an opposing force right and so um so for me it all comes back to character and plot comes from character that's a f scott fitzgerald thing but it's so true he said plot is character character is plot so i don't know if that's really a clear answer but that's a great answer <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you about your exposure to the white wolf elric elric yeah uh, elric's <laughs> one of my favorites man i started reading the elric series in high school I would go get them from used bookstores. That used to be one of my favorite things. Still is, actually. Even though I read mostly on Kindle today, I still can't resist going into used bookstores and looking for old treasures. So it used to be very easy to go to a bookstore and get all six Elric paperbacks back in the day. I don't remember the first time I read Elric, but I do remember reading all six books. And then my friend, my best friend was like, hey, I want to read that. So he read them all. And then his girlfriend started reading them all. And it was like, I could see the power that Elric had to just make people instant fans, you know, and I loved it. And I I must have read the first six books from the beginning, Elric of Day up to Stormbringer. I must have read that two or three times over, over the years. And now I'm going to do it again eventually because I just got the big hardcovers that Michael was talking about in his interview. And now there's a third book, stuff that he wrote after Stormbringer. And of course, there's the new novel too, Citadel of Forgotten Myths. Myth. Yeah. yeah, I have it. I just been trying to find the time to read it. But yes, I love Elric. I love the concept of how Michael Moorcock took the sword and sorcery zeitgeist and flipped it on its ear by having a protagonist who is a weakling and a sorcerer. This guy who has is totally dependent on either drugs, magic, or his <laughs> evil weapon to survive. The other thing I like about it is that Elric isn't really a hero. He's not exactly a villain, although sometimes he is a villain. But he always feels terribly guilty about all the evil he does. And yet he keeps doing evil, which I think is far more interesting than a character who does evil and relishes in the evil. Ha ha, I'm so evil. It's okay. I don't care. Right. You know, right. most of the time your your villains are people who relish 
their own evilness. I like the idea of El Elric being sometimes you're shocked by the things he does. Like I, I remember when I read the, I think it's in the third book when he goes back to destroy his own people, or is that the second book? It's either Sailor on the Seas of Fate or or the Weird of the White Wolf, where he just decides, screw it, I'm going to destroy all my people and their entire empire. Their time is done. And I'm like, wow. Of course, it all makes sense at the end when you find out that this is a tool that the okay, I don't want to spoil anything. But <laughs> Elric, we're, here we have an, an agent of chaos who actually is serving order because he's a he's a tool of order made from chaos to fight against chaos, <laughs> and this all comes out in the last book. But it's too late then because Elric's about to destroy the world by blowing that funky horn. So anyway, the the whole idea that this guy could be a wizard and a and a, and a, a warrior you know because you grew up on conan and you think okay you can't have a wizard and a warrior that right there is just absolutely appealing to most people mm -hmm. and then you put on top of it the fact that he's a weakling an albino and a self-hating villain and we're talking hamlet we're talking hamlet proportions here i mean there is a lot of shakespearean mood i guess shakespearean epic shakespearean type stuff going on in the Ulrich series a guy who understands that the people he's from are completely evil and depraved and these are the villains of the world that elric lives in and they serve even worse villains the lords of chaos and he he's the only one who realizes wow what a corrupt and fucked up society i'm in here and i feel like that sometimes in our society yeah. especially over the last 10 years or so <laughs> it's been like how how much worse can it get you know basically elric just totally took the whole concept of high adventure sword and sorcery and flipped it on its ear none of that would matter if the writing wasn't so smooth and poetic and also Moorcock puts in these huge ideas sometimes about society and he doesn't hit you over the head with them there's uh, revenge of the rose great book where he came that's when he came back and decided to do some more elric stuff and there's this there's a giant city in that book on wheels and all the people are work spend all day working the mechanism that keeps the city rolling on this giant track across the earth and they know there's a cliff up ahead but they just keep it rolling because that's what they do. Mm -hmm. But we got to stop. There's a cliff. Oh, no, no, we can't stop. This is what we do. And so they just plunge off the cliff. Boom. And I'm like, that's a perfect metaphor for civilization. right? The, Every civilization drives itself off a cliff eventually. What you're talking about, the sort of anti-hero villainy moral gray area of Elric is exactly why I love Elric and Kane. Carl Edward Wagner's Kane. Yeah. Kane was even meaner than Elric, right? <laughs> yeah. Kane didn't feel as bad. I mean, I'm not a Kane expert. I'm more of an El Elric expert. I've read a little bit of Kane. But Kane would do horrible stuff and not feel bad about it, right? Right, <laughs> he was, yeah. He's definitely he would, a bit more of an a-hole than Elric. I'll definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, I wouldn't have liked Elric if he didn't feel so bad about his own villainy. You know what I mean? That's what right. appealed to me. I need to read more Kane, actually. Let's talk darker than weird. 14 Tales of Horror. Okay, so I'm assuming that you some of most of these stories have been written at various points of your life and you compile them am i wrong yeah they were basically written over a 10-year period from like 2009 to 2019 i still can't believe it's 2023 because 2019 feels like last year to me <laughs> i think the pandemic and everything it got yeah to the time time seemed to dilate or something anyway yeah these are this is the other side of my career i'm most, i'm mainly known as a fantasy guy but it's always dark fantasy and some people We'll be quick to point that out. It's your writing is so dark, you know. I'm like, well, yeah, but that's the kind of fantasy I like. I like dark. I don't like what they call. They don't call it light fantasy. What do they call it? There was another term I heard. It was the opposite of grim dark. I don't remember what. It, there's some kind of a ter term out there. I've always liked dark fantasy, and I've always had a taste for horror too. 
I'm finding as I grow older, though, I'm less drawn to horror because I see more of the horror of the real world and I start to feel more of that horror, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so I don't visit revisit my horror as much as I used to because I'm looking more for stuff to comfort me, you know, and make me feel better. But again, that might be a result of the pandemic. And, and when you turn 50 right in the middle of a pandemic, bam, it's like a double shot of existential <laughs> angst. You know, you're like... <laughs> You know, so I'm just trying to, I'm moving towards the next phase here, <laughs> you know? Right. But the other half, I, I always, I've always written fantasy. And the first story I ever sold was fantasy. First few stories. But always there was this, because Weird Tales w- was always great because it had a, it was mainly horror, but with a, a side dose of fantasy and sword and sorcery. And some people, there's actually many different kinds of Weird Tales fans. There are Weird Tales fans who only want the horror stuff. Who hate the sword and sorcery stuff then there are weird tales fans like me who always preferred the sword and sorcery stuff because it's mixed with horror robert e howard clark ashton smith they both mixed horror heavily into their heroic fantasy most of clark ashton smith's heroes died in their stories they would usually die instead of what i'm trying to say is howard's characters were always triumph but clark ashton smith's characters would always fall in a pit or get eaten by a horrible monstrosity <laughs> or something get, get strangled by a mummy or something like that. So the other side of my horror horror bag, my horror bag, I guess, is driven mainly by Poe and Thomas Ligotti. I was a huge, I'm, I've always been a huge Thomas Ligotti fan ever since I discovered his first book, Songs of a Dead Dreamer. I remember back in, like, I had just graduated from college. I had no money. I was living, literally living on a couple of friends' couch, you know, while I was trying to get my shit together. And I barely had any money. But I, I found this copy of Songs from a Dead Dreamer. Didn't even know who it was. And it was just something about it. I spent what little money I had on that book, which infuriated my roommates, by the way, because I couldn't pay my rent. <laughs> but I just read that book from cover to cover going, oh, my God. So that set me on the path to looking for anything Thomas Ligotti wrote. And eventually I did a little uh, online uh, Cosmic Visions. I did this thing called Cosmic Visions online. It was a science fiction uh, magazine, fantasy sci-fi horror magazine. And I got a tiny little story. I got Thomas Ligotti agreed to let me reprint one of his tiny little stories. That's when I started finding out more about Tom. And I found out stuff like that he was uh, agoraphobic and didn't like to go out of his quarters, you know, and like this guy's dealing with real issues and they all feed his fiction. It's why his fiction is so amazingly weird and powerful. And so I think that's why Tom hasn't produced a giant body of work like other writers, you know, like Stephen King never stops writing. I think Tom uh, Nagoti is just trying to get through the day without collapsing into, you know, spasms of anxiety. And so he writes when he can, you know, he writes when he feels that he can, can write. Despite that, I still think he's the greatest living horror writer. No disrespect. A lot of people would agree with you. Yeah, and it's great because ever since I got into Ligoti, I've seen his fan base grow and grow and grow and grow. And then, of course, when the internet hit, now it's sort of this widespread. You know, you go online and you can meet you can meet thousands of Tom Ligoti fans. For a while there, the only place you could find his fiction was in Weird Tales or in little indie indie collections. Eventually, people caught on to the fact. This guy's amazing, and but he, but but he didn't produce enough to become like household name. So it's kind of cool because you won't ever have to worry about Tom Ligotti being overexposed. He, right. he doesn't produce enough to be overexposed. And every time he puts something out, it's like a little precious drop of horror, mm-hmm. you know, like a little jewel. I have I try to collect everything he does. But the other 
big horror writers for me were mainly, like I said, Edgar Allan Poe, of course. Weird Tales, you know, Lovecraft. I went through a Lovecraft phase. I don't read much Lovecraft lately, past few years, but I've always preferred his Dreamland stuff to his straight horror stuff. Which again makes me in the minority because most people Carter don't stuff. like it. Yeah, most people don't like the Randolph Carter and the Dreamlands. I'm all about they it. They like man. The, the other stuff. Yeah, I prefer the Dreamlands, and I, it's one thing that I had in common with uh, the late Willem Pugmire. Pugmire was a devotee of the Dreamland stuff, and so that's one thing we shared in common. And I think Brian Lumley did some stories set in the Dreamlands, but yeah, the Dreamlands to me was just a great fantasy, you know, and it has this undercurrent of horror, which is a really cool thing. But you know. I sort of, when all this stuff about Lovecraft started bubbling up over the last 10, 15 years, I had to take a step back and reevaluate it and say, okay, let's take a look at this. And it's sad to say, but I kind of lost my taste for reading Lovecraft when all these people started pointing out, oh, such a racist and all this. I mean, when you look at someone's life, you can't judge every every portion of their life by what they did and said in one portion of their life. But that's what people do historical figures like Lovecraft. So even though I've read enough to know that Lovecraft sort of abandoned his racist ideas yeah. the older he got, those racist things that he wrote still survive to, ironically, haunting him, haunting us to this day. So there are people out there who refuse to read Lovecraft. This guy was a racist. I'm like, well, don't read anybody who wrote before the 1950s. Just don't, That's because true. they were That's all true. racist. There's some Jack Lennon stories you can't read because of some of the words in there. You know, it's like, I, I'm a teacher too, so I'm very sensitive about work that is going to include be, be inclusive of my students. You know what I mean? Getting into Lovecraft is always problematic nowadays because you can talk about genius stories and you can talk about the imagination. You can talk about what a weird person he was, but it always comes back to, hey, wasn't he an asshole who hated black people? Probably, yeah. I mean, he he from based on the stuff he wrote, sure. Would I want to be friends with him? Hell no. But that doesn't mean I can't read his work and judge it based on its inherent quality. You know, people are too quick to dismiss the past. You know, people dismiss past authors not having lived in the time that those authors lived. And I'm not saying that I've had arguments about this before. Some people will say, well, back in the 20s, pretty much everybody was racist. And I don't think that's true, but I think a lot more people were. I think in every time period, there's always been people who knew things like slavery is wrong. Racism is wrong. All of this stuff is wrong. Misogyny is wrong. But they were overpowered by the majority of society who were saying these things, whether wrong or not, that's how we do it. I have a, sh a short temper for people who judge people who lived in the past by today's standards. You can't do that, really. You know, If right. you do that, you're missing the boat, and you're going to miss a lot of great fiction. But what I can do is when I find a piece of fiction that's objectionable to me, I can say, noted not reading that anymore not exactly. a fan of that right and like i said i've kind of lost my taste for horror fiction in general over the past few years then again this might be a cycle i might i might be rediscovering that i don't want to talk about lovecraft the whole time but it seems <laughs> it seems like when you talk about horror fiction you, you gotta bring Lovecraft. yeah in he's, he's in there just a yeah, side note about Lagodi. uh i'm gonna be talking with harry o morris here soon who was the artist on uh songs of a dead dreamer and he was actually he was the guy that first published a lot of uh Ligotti's short stories that'll be excellent yeah he's also clive yeah. barker's artist oh yes clive oh yeah i went through a clive phase too oh man when the books of blood came out if you were a horror fan you just had to read those they were so good and i read a couple of other of his books too weave world was good another guy well back in the day it was just stephen king and clive barker that was <laughs> 
That was it. You're right. Because nobody knew who Ligoti was yet. Strong, strong fan of Poe as well, although I don't read him as much now as I did when I was younger. For listeners, I want to avoid specific story spoilers as much as possible, but I do want to ask you about the opening tale, The River Flows to Nowhere. Brilliant yeah. choice for an opener. So my question Thanks. is, John, do you hate the city? No. <laughs> <laughs> that character in that, in that story says, I hate the city, and he keeps reminding you how much he hates the city. I personally don't hate the city. I like the city a lot. I like the city when I have money, because if you have money, cities are amazing. If you're broke, get your ass out of the city. <laughs> You know, if you're if you're broke, it's hard in the city. You know, it's hard to survive. But I love the city and I like going into the city. I've always said that um, I don't want to live in the city, but I want to live close to some big city. And so that's generally how I've how I've lived my life. I did live in Chicago for a year and a half. And that was enough to make me want to live a little farther out. So <laughs> it was just this idea. That story is written from the perspective of like a noir detective. Right. And this noir detective, he has to go into the city. And it's a weird, once you get in there, you find out why he hates the city because it's so damn weird and strange and unpredictable and deadly. A lot of times when you write in, in first person, people think you're writing about yourself. But at, in that story, definitely not the case. There are some things I hate about the city. There's some things I hate about the country too. In my family, I'm considered the city boy. He's a city boy. City boy. <laughs> so they're, they're all the country folk. You know, my sister still literally lives in the country. God bless her. She loves it. In the, she likes it out there in the quiet, nice open forest. Yeah, that's stuff. where I'm at. Oh, you're, you're, are you in uh, South Carolina? Edgefield. Yeah, I'm in Edgefield, South Carolina. Middle of nowhere. Edgefield? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I love the city, and I'm probably the, the only one in my family who does. Well, that's a, uh, thanks for asking that, though, because every time I go back and look at that story, I do kind of wonder. I wonder if people think I'm really saying how much I hate the city. <laughs> but, no, it's, it's the character who hates the weird city he's trapped in. <laughs> I thought that maybe it had a little bit of influence from you because I was like, I think John lives in L.A. and this is giving me L.A. vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I've never lived in L.A., but I did work there for six months, and I, I commuted from Laguna Hills just about two hours every morning, two hours every night, six months. And I, what I realized is I either got to move to L.A. or quit this job. <laughs> so I ended up, I ended up quitting the job and you know getting one closer to closer to home. But I was in SoCal for about nine years, and now I've been up in NorCal since... 2010 so okay 12 12 13 years so for me like one of the marks of a great short story is that you wish that it wasn't a short story one of yours that really stood out to me was love in the time of dracula i really oh, think there's just so much there you know it's just a, that kind of post dracula world there's just so much there to explore yeah it would be fun to do another story set in that world that was a story that just came to me i don't really remember much about it i just remember coming up with the title and thinking oh man that's a great title what would i do with that and then i developed it that's see what i'm saying every story comes from something different it could be an image it could be a word it could even be a title right Sometimes you think of a title that's so good, you just have to write a story, you know, <laughs> then you got to think of something else because a title, a good title isn't enough. You got to have, you got to have two or three good ideas really to get one good story. You know, you got to mix a few good ideas together. One usually isn't enough. It's fun sometimes to write about these characters that everybody knows, like Dracula or a couple of times I've written a homages to Clark Ashton Smith and I'll, I'll use like his setting for a, for a story, but I had never done anything with, you know, such a famous iconic horror character and i thought you know what would it be like if dracula actually did just take over the world so that's basically what that story is exploring you get it through the lens of a guy who's absolutely in love with a girl who is 
a survivalist. And so it was also a chance to play around with this survivalist angle where like the female figure is actually the, the, the badass and the main character is sort of like her lover, but like he's, I don't want to say he's the beta, he's following her yeah. and her people. And she gets a chance to, or I get a chance to write this really tough female character, but then I don't want to give away the story, but right. things really change when they see a broadcast from the Lord of the World, Dracula. <laughs> I guess the less I say about that story, the better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Better figure it out, uh, discover it as they go. Dracula would be fun to write about again sometime. My personal favorite story in the collection is Behind the Eyes. Oh, thank you so much. That was one of my early horror stories that I wrote. Yeah, that was one of the first real, like, okay, let me really write a, a horror story. So I was so obsessed with writing fantasy. And I said, I'm going to do something that draws on my Lagodi influence. Because to me, horror was Lagodi. You mm -hmm. know, there was no greater horror experience than Tom Lagodi. Pretty much still is for the most part. So I wanted to do that. And I also got a chance to pull in some details from my real life in that story. The, the main character is talking about his spooky grandma who lives on a farm. I did have a grandma. She wasn't spooky at all. She was very loving. But she did live on a farm and there was a white horse in the story there's a white horse that's you know kind of symbolic of death or whatever but so i got i just kind of took my actual facts and twisted them to serve the story so in the story the grandma is a sort of a gypsy witch who collects these eyeballs and opens the gateway to this other creature that comes in from some other reality so you can probably as a Lagodi fan you can probably see a lot of Lagodi in that of course it's not Lagodi because i could never fill his shoes so it's kind of like my take on what I like about Lagodi's mm. stuff. I was finally, I was so glad to get that back in print because it appeared in a, a magazine called Space and Time. Been around a long time, but it doesn't have a very large circulation. So not a lot of people had seen that story. So thank you for the kind words. I'm, I'm glad it's finding a new audience. It is a great story, and it kind of segues perfectly into this question I like to ask everyone. Uh, have mm -hmm. you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I've been scared before, like walking up out of a dark basement. I'll tell you one thing, speaking of this is some this is a chance to talk about Lagodi again. There's a story by Tom Lagodi called Purity. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't. Purity. It came out in Weird Tales back in the late nineties, I believe. Well, when I read that story, it affected me. Okay, because the concept behind the story is that if you really, you know how people are afraid of the dark and there's no reason to be afraid. It's just a dark basement. The, the concept of the story, the conceit of the story is that when you are so frightened of something, that energy creates a response from the universe. It creates something for you to be frightened of. And I, I, and I couldn't get that out of my head. And so for, for about a year after that, every time I walked up out of a dark basement or, you know, walked out of a room, I would just like look behind me and feel a little twinge of terror. And there's only a couple stories in my life that have actually scared me. And Purity was one of them. Another one was a Laird Barron story, which for my money, Laird is the greatest horror writer to come along since Lagodi. But Laird isn't really focusing on horror that much anymore. He's kind of moved to a crime noir type stuff mm. with a horror flavor. But back then he was doing straight horror. But yeah, he, I, a story of his that I, re I read, this was only, sheesh, this was back in like 20, 
2011. I was reading a story of his set in a seedy hotel room, and I was staying in a seedy hotel room at the time. So it was just a little too close to reality for me. (laughs) But I don't think I answered your question. What was the original question? If if you've had an experience that you consider supernatural apparently. Oh, okay. Back to the story behind the eyes. When I was little, my grandma, she wasn't a spooky grandma or anything, but she did have an attic. And in the attic, there was a dark closet. It didn't have a door. It was just like a blot of darkness. And so I remember one time I asked her, what's in there grandma and she said that's where the eyes are don't go in there and that's really what inspired the story behind the eyes because i never did go in there <laughs> i wouldn't I <laughs> it's it scared the shit out of me you know as a, a four or five year old kid and i don't know what she meant by the eyes either <laughs> but in my story i come up with an answer to this sort of and she may have just been messing with me you know you know how people will yeah. scare little kids don't go in there there may have been like something dangerous in there or something but it was a scary part of the attic where I didn't want to go. And it always scared the heck out of me. And she said the eyes were in there. And so that's where I, that story really came from. Like, what, 20, 30 years later? That's um, awesome. Man. But that that scared me. And then there there have been times when I've been, like, overcome by the immensity of the universe. But I don't think I've ever seen, like, a ghost or anything. At least not that I can remember. Hey, grandma scaring you definitely counts. <laughs> yeah. My Aunt Debbie used to tell me the story of old Bloody Bones. Like when she used to babysit me and she would tell me, old Bloody Bones is coming to get you. It'd be like, no! <laughs> so she kind of, I thanked her. I, I dedicated the book to her because she was like the only relative I had, the only one I still have who watches horror movies and loves horror. And like she watches Walking Dead. My mom won't even see one horror movie. You know? She's like, no way. And my sister's the same way. So my Aunt Debbie is... She was like the only person in my family who got the horror thing, you know, and still does. She's she's such a cool aunt. Matt Debbie. <laughs> so, John, what's the best writing advice you've received and who gave it to you? Oh, wow. I would probably have to say there was a time when I was worried about writing, getting gigs, you know, getting writing gigs. And Daryl Schweitzer, he's been a, sort of a mentor to me ever since late 80s when I was trying to get him to publish my Weird Tales early stories. A few years back, he told me something that really helped me out. I was going through a rough time because I, I, I had my first novel. My first deal was three novels. Well, that, that came out. And so I was trying to get my second deal. And I was kind of going through a depression because I was like, I, I can't. I wrote this other novel, but no one wants it. And I can't get another deal. And he was saying, just be glad because if you get hired to write, if you make all your money from writing, you have to write whatever you can get. If that's your only income source, you have to write whatever you can get, even if you hate it. Daryl has known people for 50 years who are in the writing business. He told me the story of George Alec Effinger, who was so poor, poor guy was in the hospital. He was basically dying. He was in the hospital for months at a time. And to support himself from his hospital bed, he was writing Planet of the Apes episode, like this, the TV show Planet of the Apes from the early 70s. They did novels, they, they novelized every episode. He wrote those novelizations of the episodes from his hospital bed because that's the only way he had to make money. So basically the advice was, if you wanna write what you wanna write, then enjoy your freedom and don't be afraid to follow your own muse and realize, this is hard for me to put into words, realize that as long as you're not being paid to write, you can write whatever you want. And so I have a day job that I enjoy. I, I teach high school and I enjoy it. Sometimes it drives me crazy, but I enjoy it. You know, any, any job's going to drive you crazy sometimes. But I like my day job. 
that takes an, a tremendous weight off me because as I reminded, I reminded people of this many, many times over the years, I can write whatever I want to write now. If nobody wants to publish it, too bad. I'll write something else. Maybe they'll want to publish it or maybe somebody else will publish it later. But the best advice was don't make writing your single source of income because then you're going to have to write whatever the hell you could get. This is how people end up writing shitty movies and horrible books over and over again because they have to pay their bills. So that's actually even it's it's not really about writing. It's about the business of writing. Right. That was actually the best advice, I think, because I started not I stopped feeling sorry for myself because I couldn't get another deal, you know, and I started realizing I'm just going to write whatever I want. I'm already making a living. I don't really need money from writing. Sure, it would be nice to get a big check, but I don't need that money to live. I've already got a, a career as a teacher. So that's where I'm at. And my philosophy has always been, as now, it's not always been this, but it is now, that if you don't, if nobody likes what I'm doing, just wait a little while. I'll keep doing it until they get, they get into it. Right. You know? <laughs> that's how all my favorite bands made it. They did not come out and try to sound like you too. They did not come out and try to sound like Kiss. They came out and tried to sound like themselves. Nirvana, same thing. And the world discovers those people and loves them because they're not like anyone else. They're right. totally being themselves. So I guess you could boil down that advice to just totally be yourself in writing and don't be don't be held hostage by doing writing as your only source of income. Now, when it comes to best advice about the craft of writing, it would probably be something similar. It would probably be something like just write what you love. And I think I got that from Neil Gaiman as well as other writers. And it kind of joins in with what I, what I just said, because when you're not making a living from your writing, you can write exactly what you love, right? And my philosophy is just keep doing what you love and eventually someone will discover it. So I hope that's, I hope that's the case. But the great thing about it is even if it never gets to the point, I'm still writing what I love. I might gain five to 10 new fans every year for the next 40 years until I die, you know? So be it, whatever. I'll keep writing until I don't feel like writing anymore. And of course, there are some times when I don't feel like writing. But overall, that's my chosen creative outlet. You know, right. like in my 20s, you couldn't stop me from playing guitar. <laughs> and in my 50s, you can't really stop me from writing. You know, hey man, that was a really long, thank you. That was a really long answer. Though. Sorry about that. <laughs> hey, it's a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you can edit that down. That's what people are here for. Well, John, yeah. uh, just to put a bow on everything before I let you go for the evening, uh, tell folks what's on the horizon for you and where they can find your work and keep up with you. You can find all my books on Amazon, John R. Fultz, F-U-L-T-Z. And I have a website, a blog, which I update irregularly. Not regularly, but ir irregularly. It's called FultzAuthor.com, FultzAuthor.com. Every now and then I might pop up on Blackgate, but basically you can get all my books on Amazon. Right now, I don't have any, I got one story coming out in weird books sometime soon, and that's my last unpublished story. So wow. what I'm, what I'm looking at, right, cause I quit writing short stories about three years ago. So what I'm trying to do now this summer, I'm getting ready to move into a new apartment, but what I plan after all that's settled and I'm, I'm settled, I'm going to try to crank out a new batch of short stories. So as to where they'll show up, who knows? Uh, I'll probably write out. I'll probably crank out a new batch of short stories, and eventually next year probably go back to writing an another new novel. But it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. A lot of times, what you do depends on what's happening, you know, and like like what opportunities you see. You know, I've got this new novel series I'm trying to find a home for, and as soon as that finds a home, then I'll be cranking out a third book in that series. I'm sure. But until then, it seems like it's a good idea to do some more short stories. Keep those muscles alive, you know? I'll take as many as you want to pump out, man. 
<laughs> appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for having me again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a good Take night. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with John. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.